I'm Kelly Davis. You're listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. This is episode six, Heavy Rescue. If you're just joining us now, I suggest going back and starting with episode one. We are not following a strictly chronological path through this story, but we are building on information heard in previous episodes. During the first five episodes of this podcast, we worked our way through much of the history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. We met many of the band members, heard about the Charlestown Loft and other important places the band's played over the years. We went with them out on tour and heard about how the band has evolved over the last decade. Now, before I go much further, let me introduce my special guest, Allison Hussey. Hey, Allison. How are you? Hey, Kelly. Yeah. Uh hanging out yeah doing all right yeah so in the last episode we talked about shifting to a more meta framework to better understand sunburn hand of the man yeah yeah i think that splits into two sections one's about how the band functions as a creative entity and then the other is about how the band functions as a social unit and of course there's some overlap between these two things and we might need to do some disentangling but I suggest let's try to focus this episode on sunburn as a social unit. Does that sound like an okay plan? Okay. Okay, so with that in mind, where do you think we should start? What what do you want to hear about? Yeah, I guess I would be interested in kind of doing like a time warp back to really understand what got Rob and John so connected over music in the first place because yeah. it really seems like that is like the glue of so much of their lives, but then also their relationship with each other yeah, and their relationships with a lot of, a lot of other people. Yeah, absolutely. I think music and everything that is tied up with creative expression is inextricably woven into the story. So I appreciate you starting us here. Um, We heard about how Rob and John got turned on to weird music by the Harney brothers. And then it just seemed to roll from there. Is there anything else in particular you're interested in hearing about in this first segment? How did these guys even start playing music in the first place? Yeah, that's a great place to start. I heard so many stories about this. most of the people I interviewed for this project how they got started playing music. And the thing that stood out to me was how their stories were always bound up in a larger journey of finding themselves and each other through music. Let's get started with Rob Thomas and John Maloney. I asked them if music was something that happened at home or if they started playing music during school or, you know, here's Rob. No, I never never studied anything ever. It, was, it wasn't much music running in the family. My cousin, though, who I grew up in the house with, my cousin Rich, who was in Sunburn, the original lineup, he uh, he was sort of my big brother. He was about eight, eight years older than me and he lived in the house with us. And he took up guitar in the early 80s and he got really good, really really quickly. He was one of these guys who would get interested in something and kind of master it quickly and then get bored and leave it alone. But he showed me a few things on guitar. My sister uh, married a really nice guy who... Uh, Gave me my first guitar when I was 12, I think, and showed me a few chords. I never got very uh, musically educated on a technical level, ever. You know, as the years went by, my horizons expanded in interests, you know, listening to just about everything I could think of. Uh, I never, I don't know much theory. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either. Yeah, it just comes with uh, comes with all the years of doing it. You just yeah. you just learn learn things as you go. And John Maloney described a similar experience to Rob's, but he had to look outside the home for these kinds of opportunities. 
growing up, I played a little bit of guitar at my neighbor's house, playing some chords and stuff. They were a very musical family, and they played. Uh, they were a big like Beatles family. The dad was a working country musician, played five nights a week, playing like barroom country stuff, which there was a scene for in Boston back then, like honky tonk bands and. Uh, so, yeah, they were very musical, so I'd spend a lot of time over there. But I never had drums. I always wanted to play drums. But we couldn't afford drums in my family. So, in the senior year in high school, somebody uh, gave me a, a set of drums. And I just transferred all my air drumming techniques to the drum set, which was uh, a learning... There was a learning curve to that, for sure. And then I just kept playing and playing and started playing with some people, jamming with high school friends and practice space underneath a music store in Everett Square. I didn't take any lessons or anything. I couldn't afford that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I just kept going and going. Before I was able to ask Ron Schneiderman about how he got started playing music, he brought it up embedded in a broader point about what propelled him forward to play and keep playing music. Personally, I got to this point where I really got tired of just the linear nature of songs. And it was never really like what I was into playing music when I was a kid, when I was younger. I mean, I played music since, I, you know, I played junior high and high school and played in bands in high school and played in orchestra. I played all that stuff. But um, I, got, I was much more into like the, you know, like trying to learn more about like the spiritual side of some, you know, like when I say spiritual, I mean like fusion spiritual, <laughs> you know, like the McLaughlin, uh, Fripp McLaughlin and those guys, Santana, and it's, I was just much more into that, like, you know, the, 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 the mind of it. I asked Sarah Gibbons how long she had been playing music. Um, I mean, always. I w- I've been singing since I was a small child. My, my mom played guitar. My parents were very religious and grew up Irish Catholic and lived in Boston for their whole lives or the Boston area. And I was born in Boston, like in Boston, not in a suburb of Boston. I was born in Boston. But in the 80s, in the early 80s, which was this like weird cult time where, where like everybody was like coming out of hippiedom and like, you know, like all these cults started in the early 80s. And there was this like spiritual hunger. Um, and when I was very young, her parents moved her out to the Providence area because there was a sect, for lack of a better term, there was a chapter there. That's the word. There was a chapter of this like organization called the people of God's love who were, they were Catholic, but they incorporated Pentecostal practices into their meetings. So they would attend mass. And then in the basement of, of the cathedral in Providence, they would meet and have like this day long meeting and speak in tongues and read scripture you know do all do all of the things that like a pentecostal like you know revival meeting would have but it was catholic and it was in that context that sarah first started performing music so my mom played guitar and we sang music in church so that's probably the that's the first time i performed and was good at it you know could could really insert myself and understand emotionally how to express through singing from a very young age and like sort of intuitively just understood music from a very young age and was songwriting since I was, I mean, six and my daughter's doing it now. Like she makes up songs like I did. And so, yeah, so I've been musical and my family's been musical my whole life. My extended family is very musical um, in a very sort of like Irish American way. My grandfather was in a barbershop quartet. One out of four of my extended circle of family knows how to play an instrument, at least, at least like at a party or something. And like, can you know, so, so it's very, so music has always been part of my life. And I've always felt very, I've always felt like it's been very necessary. And I can't remember a time that it hasn't been important to me. For Michael Kay, music was an early refuge. Under weird, like, youth childhood, like, traumatic circumstances, too, I realize now as a kid, like, when I encountered that, it's definitely a ripe time for that kind of stuff. You're in your, I was in junior high transferring to high school, but I was moving to Maine 
10 hour drive away from my home. So switching to high, switching from junior high school to high school in a new town, um, running for our lives, me and my mother. So, um, yeah. Uh, so thankfully punk rock and skateboarding were like a thing that like saved me. And yes, he said they were running for their lives, but that's something we can come back to later in this episode. First, I wanted to follow this thread to understand how he got started playing music. I asked if his early exposure to punk led to any high school bands or... I, mean, I, I came to playing music late, but I was always like a groupie to my friend's bands, just buying all the right records and the good music and like just into it. And a lot of it, the input was coming from my friends like post high school who were super talented. They influenced me. They turned me on to music that was amazing. And there's an interesting thing that happens here. I think in our society, there are all these cultural ideas that prescribe who and how someone can be an artist. And what I hear in Michael's story is an interesting case study in how many people slowly break through these mental blockades of class or education or titles and find their own modes of creative expression. Uh, Along with that time period, I was listening to and hanging out with this band Bright from Boston. You know, open tuning, John Fahey, but with space rock kind of stuff. Uh, so good. Drummer Joe Lebrecht was just really incredible. He's brothers with Paul Lebrecht from Sunburned. So Bright introduced me to Juno somehow. I think maybe Paul had the record. I was living with Paul and Bright was putting out records and that was amazing to me. And I was first hearing Can and Master Musicians of Shizuka or whatever and I had a Telecaster and a weird old phase pedal and was just trying to figure it out. For Michael, it sounds like his friendship with other musicians really pushed him forward. He mentioned the Lebrecht brothers. Paul Lebrecht was also a longtime member of Sunburn, and he's one of the people that got married out in Alaska. And there were other musicians he described as being important during those early years. His friend Tim, or T.W. Walsh, gave him some instruments and, of course, sunburn guitarist Mark Orleans. And like we've heard before, the power of these communities of people who loved music, but also led by example, sharing their knowledge or pushing themselves and others around them to go ahead and be creative, however works best for you. And then then I went to see Bright and Juno play, and I couldn't believe what I heard. I just couldn't believe it. I had just, it was the most amazing thing that I, I, you know, I had been so in love with like late Coltrane and just hearing that like fiery power of like just people just wailing their spirit, you know, and just, you know, musically. Uh, and those guys are just incredible. Juno was just amazing. They're great on record, but live, it was like weather system in the room. You know, the sound was just so, it was incredible. So that's how I met Mark. He was first just coming over to the apartment, and I'm just, I can't. <laughs> like, Mark's here. The bright guys are here. I'm like, I'm going back into my room and playing an open tuning, just trying to. <laughs> As he said earlier, just trying to figure it out. Let's shift to Taylor Richardson. His pathway to music started in a really similar way to Michael's. Growing up in Atlanta, I listened to like a lot of rap and stuff, but I was a skateboarder, so that got me into punk. My brother and I were in like a punk band, and we always liked Black Flag and stuff, but, you know, it was never, I was like always like, you know, a weird kid and like, but it, it was limiting in Atlanta. I think, you know, most of the people I was friends with were into like shit like the dead, which I despised at the time. So I I really didn't like connect with anybody growing up like musically besides, you know, other people like I would skateboard with and I'd I'd always have little bands and stuff. But, you know, I was always trying to like find the weirdest music I could. And so that that was kind of my entrance into the weird stuff. And I wanted to know what Taylor was looking for in this weird art. I was really like a way to express myself. I mean, I'd always been, I've always been artistic and I've always made visual art. And there was just something inside of me when I was, I was younger. Like I was just trying to find like the most avant-garde or the, the most, or, or the weirdest or the most transgressive stuff would always interest me for some reason. I can't really, 
you know, it could be just trying to rebel. Like it could be, it could have been a rebellion phase, but at the same time, um, I just, you know, was turned on to sounds like, so I was just kind of trying to find a way to, to, to do something that I could express myself in a way that wasn't, you know, confined to all the things I'd been taught. If you recall Taylor's story of joining Sunburn, he spoke about how blown away he was being asked to play with these musicians that he looked up to. So I wondered how that invitation and the subsequent jamming with the band impacted the larger arc of his life. Uh, yeah, that was like a, a huge moment in my evolution is like finding, you know, like, like people that I think were as weird as I felt. So I was just looking for ways to express myself, but I I never wanted, you know, to be in a band that like was really successful. I just always wanted to like kind of be like in an underground band. So, Allison, there's a selection of stories from some of the summer members that hopefully gives you a sense of how they came to playing music. And I think you could think of all of those as case studies because there's similarities all all over the place. Were there any moments that really stood out to you in that segment? Yeah, I really thought that that comment from Taylor about, you know, finding people were as weird as I felt like that was something that really struck something in me because like that has that's just been like part of my relationship with music for a long time oh yeah it jumped out to me when he first said it it felt so familiar but could you say a bit more about what the statement suggested to you yeah you know if you're somebody who feels like you're kind of on the outside of edge of things or feel like you maybe don't really have somewhere that you easily fit in that once you find those people, it's, it's so freeing, whether that comes through music or through pretty much anything else. Um, And I think that's one thing that is a really big element of the story is even if, even if music isn't your thing, or even if sunburn hand of the man isn't your thing, it's still very easy to understand the impulse of like, how good it feels to find your people and to be able to like really be yourself among them. And then to kind of like enable one another in continuing, continuing to be yourself and like growing who, who else you can be and finding out like all of the wonderful things that can be. That sounds, that's getting very sentimental at this point, but uh, not to me, music is sentimental. Well, yeah, but I think that's probably the whispers of culture telling us weirdos to shut up and conform. But, you know, cool thing about Sunburn is they're a band whose existence is kind of a refusal to shut up. So moving us along, but, you know, (laughs) moving us along, uh, what should we hear about next? Yeah, so I guess I'm wondering, like, what were some of the maybe, like, other influences or like artistic forces that were really impactful to them that like also kind of hit that feeling of like, Oh, this was as weird as, as I felt. Yeah. That's a great topic. Plenty of room to explore there for this next segment. Are there any specific things that I should try to cover? So, you know, sunburned hand of the man, I feel like kind of has this almost like air of mysticism to it but i know that that's like not really what the group is about and i've heard that it's actually like more indebted to the wu-tang clan than anything else uh did you get any information on that do do, do you mean like the band name or as an influence because i heard about both but yeah is that something can you confirm or deny and or maybe explain what the connection is there i can yes i can great that's a great <laughs> one yeah i heard a good deal about wu-tang so i'll probably work my way to that in this next segment
My background in weird outsider music is in college radio, and some of the Sunburn guys had similar experiences. For example, John Maloney was a program director during undergrad at his college's station. The real radio DJ standout in this band is Conrad Capistran. In an earlier episode, we heard how Conrad came to Boston for art school in the early 80s, and a key part of his path into weird music was through his experience volunteering as a DJ at a couple of Boston area college and underground radio stations. Now, if you're under 40, it might sound bizarre, but back before the dawn of the MP3 and Web 2.0, the main way people heard about new music was on the radio. College and freeform stations were great equalizers because they could spin stuff like rare punk singles that a kid might never get to hear just because they were young or didn't have the cash to buy the record. And there was this certain power of being a radio DJ, especially at those underground stations where you kind of called your own shots. This is how Conrad Capistran described his motivations for being a DJ. But the Late Risers Club had a lot of listeners, I think. It, it was well listened to, which that wasn't my motivation. I could care less about fame or any of that shit. Uh, my motivation was that I love music and I was able to immerse myself in more new music, et cetera, et cetera. But anyhow, yeah, I d- did radio there and there for a long time. Rob actually came on my show once. We s- set up a shtick that I, he was going to be my cousin and uh, he was going to come. <laughs> so it's like my cousin came to the radio station and I'm dealing with him. And they're like, he's like, oh, you used to be cool before you were a short hair hippie. And he, <laughs> I used to have short hair. He like antagonized me. One of my friends later said, I felt, I was worried about you. Like it, it seemed really tense. And I was like, oh, that's great. Like we totally pulled one over in the audience. But that was Ro- Rob's thing. Rob, you know, liked to do that sort of stuff in characters. So. so radio is one of the ways these guys connected to new music and to each other. Another way we've heard about in earlier episodes was that pattern of the slightly older record store clerk befriending a younger, weird outcast. That's how Rob met Conrad, and then how Taylor and Dave Bohill both met Rob. Ultimately, it was a drive to learn about underground music that propelled many of the Sunburn people together. Here's how Dave Bohill described this community. There was a free internet camaraderie with people that got together knowing like being like, oh, you're into outsider shit? Oh, well, here we are. And it was either metal, hardcore, or like experimental, or jazz collector, or like DJ, as you find, you know what I mean? There was there was always something going on. And Ron Schneiderman specifically pointed out Conrad as an example of a person that loved music and really helped to spread that love to others. You know, Conrad's history, of um in boston of being like working at the record store and his radio stuff is a good example of this like there is also this a lot of there was always a lot of knowledge about interesting music and art going through just generally through head to head around boston in a way that never really translates like i mean i grew up outside new york and it becomes so senior scenester and so self self um focus sometimes that like um in Boston, you know, people would know about so many other more out there things and you know, just there was always their own version of it kind of going on. And that's one thing that's really amazing about this band that I think is baked in to how they functioned over the years. They are actively breaking down barriers like the dichotomy of audience and stage or even what constitutes performance. Many of them were working-class guys with no hierarchically sanctioned training. And the art world, who it loves trying to exclude people like that, or at least silo them away as outsiders. But Sunburn? They're just here to get weird, and we're all invited along for the ride. Another very common way gatekeeping forms in the music world is through sexism. And that dynamic did come up in my conversations with Sarah Gibbons. At the time of this recording, Sarah was the only currently active woman in the band. But as we know, the membership in this band shifts and changes constantly, and there have been quite a few women who've been in Sunburn. Now, I can't speak to the experience of the many other women who've played in the band over the years, but here are some of Sarah's thoughts. And I don't feel excluded as like the only woman. I I don't feel like I can't 
I can't participate in the conversations that are happening. Um, I think sometimes when there are groups of men and maybe, and maybe this is just my memory of being young. Cause the only other time I've, I was around bands and like groups of men was when I was younger. And this might have more to do with the fact that I'm uh, a grown up now and can handle my shit. <laughs> and I think the, my takeaway from it is that they are very unpretentious people. I think a lot of people in in this sort of like experimental circle of music or art can be very exclusive or it can feel very exclusive. And Sunburned is not that at all. It's like anti-exclusive. Even though it's hard, it, even though a lot of people might feel that way because they don't understand or can't break into, I don't want to say they don't understand, because it might be intimidating to sort of breach the wall of like very East Coast abrasive, sarcastic humor. But, but, but there's really like no judgment, I think, when you get down to the bottom line. It's, it's very, unpretentious and genuine and welcoming. I mean, maybe I feel this way just because I, I recognize like, especially John and Rob, like just seem like guys I knew growing up. Like Rob sounds like my uncle to me. He has the same accent there. You know, he's from the South shore. My whole family, my whole extended family is from the South shore and Rob's sort of like delivery and accent is very familiar to me. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that John is a very genuine, probably one of the most genuine people I've ever met. Um, and maybe gets a bad rap sometimes or thinks he does, but he has so many people all over the world who love him. And I wish he remembered that more. Because there's a reason for that. I think the absence of elitist pretense is probably what draws me the most to this band. Turning back to the last clip from Ron Schneiderman, he started by pointing out Conrad Capistran as an example of someone just being excited about art and wanting to share that knowledge and enthusiasm. With this in mind, here's a segment where Conrad gives a nice sampling of the many influences present in Sunburn Hand of the Man. And as an example of the non-pretentiousness, he starts with a joke that points out the reality that our knowledge about music isn't some static social currency handed to us at birth. It takes time and curiosity to build. I didn't know about any music when I was like 10, you know. Uh, <laughs> um, my fa family was, is social conservatives, Catholics, so it's like we didn't have, have that. But... Because I went to art school for music genres, like if I listened to punk, it was like the more arty stuff, like post-punk I related to. Psychedelia, uh, avant-garde music. Uh, at the time Sunburn was going on, I was listening to a lot of academic electronic stuff like like uh, Subotnik, Milton S Morton Subotnik and Stockhausen and all that stuff. Socially, I'm coming from like post-punk indie world, but indie before now, like what it is now, it's like, it's like a, it's a genre term that means specific, like stylistic elements. Indie rock was just literally independent rock bands. You know, I haven't actively listened to a lot of John Cage, but his concept of anything can be worth it. Not that anything is music, but you can listen to anything and like hear it and appreciate it as it is, like just the sound, that influenced me for music that I listen to. I listen to a lot of different kinds of stuff, but I'm, I'm already inclined. And I feel that Sunburn, Sunburn um, definitely incorporates elements of like performance art into some of what we do, you know? But it's not stuffy academic. That's one thing I, I like about playing with these guys is like, they're like, you know, regular guys, but they you know, they like all this, like, you know, fringy stuff, but, but they're not artistic pretentious. Like, you know, you've been around John now for a while. He's not pretentious. No. no. 
So it's like that's how I I really relate to these guys because just everyone I know, almost everyone I know is like it's through music. It's like did I make a lot of friends with Barrett's friends who were parents? No, like I <laughs> I didn't enter that world. You know, I mean you do to a certain extent, but it's like it's like I had a kid, but like the way I the way I am is like I don't know. The people just because they were parents didn't mean that I related to them. At this point, Conrad and I totally went off the rails swapping stories about being awkward and anxious dads failing to successfully navigate parental social worlds. But his kid's grown up and doing okay, so that gives me some hope. So, but, uh, you know, back to the story. I asked Conrad if this shared love of music informed how the band was created. I think that most of the people got invited because they had a particular mindset. We were friends, but we were friends because of music. We shared interests, you know. My experience with the there's a lot of camaraderie. I mean, it's you know, it's like I like John and Rob knew each other for a long time before the band started, so they had that band of like being friends. The you know the bond. I'm sorry, not the band. They were really friend friends. Dave Bowhill talked about how this shared passion for music also played out in the sunburn jamming. We're all listening to the newest Beck, the newest Sonic Youth, the new the newest uh, Acid Mother's Temple and out outside music and stuff. And so when we came together, we were just like really fucking deconstructing all of it. And it was really fun. But I didn't actually know it at the time that we were doing that. I was just kind of along for the ride because I was a young kid. And at the time, I felt young, too. The, my musical naivete, I think, added to a lot of the enthusiasm that went into, like, what can we do with all of our talents, you know? So there's this weird thing happening here where they all love music, but it's untainted by cool kid power dynamics. They just love whatever they love, and they don't worry if it's cool or not. And here's a great example of what I'm talking about that will also answer Allison's questions about the Wu-Tang Clan. There's a quietest interview where Rob Thomas tells the story that in the very early days of the band, they were making improvised experimental film about as much as they were jamming. And in one of those videos, Rob was tripping and playing a character of an old British person, listing off all the bands he'd been in, and one of the names that came out was Sunburn Hand of the Man. And in that interview, he attributed it in part to his, at the time, fondness for the Welsh band Man, but more importantly, he was really into a Wu-Tang side project called The Sons of Man. Wu-Tang came up repeatedly in my conversations with Rob and John Maloney, here are a few of the choicest cuts. Sons of Man, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, man, with Buddha Monk and Killer Priest. Yeah, yeah Wu-Tang blew my mind. First like wave of solo records that came out from the yeah. Wu-Tang that were maybe most of those were produced by Rizzo. Yeah. And then the backing tracks on those alone are the most psychedelic. If that was a band, this would be like mind-blowing. Why isn't this treated as psychedelic music? Yeah, it's this so is, wild from another planet yeah. and this is like this is the shit this is the most modern psychedelic music that that's out there and i became obsessed and i, I feel like yeah, i have to say it was a huge influence on sunburn i was like oh, oh six, yeah. seven, eight guys you know yeah. <laughs> we gotta, like, you know i think i think a lot of us could, could way more relate to wu-tang and, and rap than any of us will ever be able to relate to grateful dead and and that you know like People coming from upper middle class yeah. backgrounds, having shit handed to them their whole lives, and Chad and I grew up in the projects. Yeah. We knew, we knew, you know, we knew drug dealers. This is like we, you know, we rode around stolen cars and shit. You know, we've been arrested. We spent time in jail. You know, we're we're not like you know s sheltered in these like you know like gated white communities. We're all we're, you know we all worked in multicultural places and yeah, yeah we were lucky that way. We were, yeah, we were lucky. I remember a rumor going around uh, uh, um, in '96, I think, 
before the Wu-Tang Forever came out, there was like a, a street rumor that the, the Wu-Tang thing seemed so, I mean, it was intense and significant, but it seemed like there was, uh, they were going to change the world or something from my perspective. There was a rumor going around that like, yeah, the Wu are working on a thing to break all the black people out of prison and shit. That's like, oh, fuck yeah, this is on, they're on it, you know. And there was a bizarre combination of the Wu and then Dylan came out with Time Out of Mind in 96, right? Yeah. Seven, seven, maybe. Anyway, those two things, they, they became conflated in a way. I was like, oh, there's a biblical significance to all this shit. Yeah. Look out. Ghostface, the Iron Man, fucking flew, the, the liquid swords, TKL, all that shit. Oh, yeah. Like, Holy fucking shit. Blew my mind. And uh, yeah, Sons of Man was definitely uh, something I thought about a lot. So it certainly was part of the, the, uh, the name of our thing came from that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also asked Michael Kay if he thought Wu-Tang was an influence on the band. That feels right to me. I vibe that as much as I'm not. I know everybody else is far more into that than I am. Uh, but I don't think I'm missing the point. That's why I'm with Sunburn for that, like, that vibe that's the Wu-Tang vibe. I wondered if he could describe what that vibe felt like to him. I know it's a crew that it, that's tight. And they've been with each other for a long time and come from the same background of like nothing and trouble, you know, that that the music was the only thing that mattered. And it was definitely one of those things that this is like the only way you can get out. Like it's the only thing you got. So that's what's going on. And I asked Michael if this was just like a vibe about life or if he like John and Chad also grew up in a working class community. Very working class. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my grandfather vinyl sided, um, the whole all the uncles vinyl sided. I wanted to know what that then meant for the band. How did and how does this vibe manifest in Sunburn's music? We're hanging on by a thread here. Like it's it's fucking serious. Like when we're like plugged in and we're playing, and maybe even there's that intensity in life or something, being like lower class and having to work to survive and pay your rent and pay for food and maybe have a fucking dream and have all this fucking power bottled up in you that's crushed. Okay, so there's the Wu-Tang Clan. That answers that question? Yeah, yeah. That were, that's like really fascinating and was definitely new information to me. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, I'll confess I brought it up with them several times just because it seemed like a really telling example of the complexities of this band. You know, in talking to so many people in the band, did you find that there were factors like other than music that really brought them together? Yeah, that's a great question. That Wu-Tang example definitely suggests that there were wider factors at play in the story, specifically class identity. We've heard a bit about Catholicism and spirituality maybe played a role. More than anything, I heard a lot about the impact of like childhood experiences and how that damage was present in their lives. How much did you speak with the band about the band as like a place of emotional safety or like emotional yeah. comfort maybe is a better way to put it. Yeah, that's a really helpful way to think about this. And I think that's a good topic for the next segment. With that in mind, what else do you want to hear about? At one point, Michael said something about being on the run for his life, which yeah. was a literal situation. Um, yeah. Did you hear any more from him about like, you know, kind of what was going on for him at a young age? Yes, I did promise that we would come back to this. Thank you. That's a great place to start for this next segment.
Through this episode, we've heard Michael Kay reference a difficult childhood a number of times. And so I asked if he could tell me more about his experience. A really interesting thing that happened was that he started with this qualifying statement saying that many of us experience difficulties in childhood and that experience of childhood trauma is very relative. And then he continued. Everything, a lot of things can screw people up and be things that just aren't, just twist people up. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what, but I got some like crazy fucking, my mom, I grew up in a Hell's Angel bar. Um, so yeah, I was just in harm's way all the time. Just like pretty much somebody take care of him. You know, like I stayed at my grandmother's. My mom had an apartment sometimes, but, you know, she was like shooting coke and just dating bad people. And uh, I didn't know the difference. You don't know the difference. You're just doing shit and like whatever. But right around the periphery and things going on were just bad people and stuff and drugs around at a young age and stuff like that and weird culture and and then the danger and then you then we had to like really like run move to maine to get away from somebody but everybody's got their shit there's a passion for music and there's a warpedness in all of us for sure i mean there's a lot of weird guys in the band come from some weird places and stuff or or just the you know just caught up in obsessions or passions or something you know obsessive or i don't know it's got room for that to you know maybe we're like a super loose band that's like actually like really all uptight but like the band lets us like finally like loosen enough because we're i don't know i don't know and I didn't just hear this from Michael. All of these guys brought stuff like this up. Here's a moment from John Maloney's basement where he and Rob Thomas discussed some of these underlying factors and how they, maybe counterintuitively to an outsider, served to keep the band together over the years. We always felt more comfortable around people who were more like, you know, on the fringes anyway. Absolutely. Just felt comfortable around, you know, we weren't, none of us were like team sports guys or uh, yeah. jocks or, you know, like. We uh, also weren't indie rock hipsters either. You know? Yeah, we so weren't. We couldn't, we couldn't get, we never got too close with that crowd. And uh, yeah, we never quite fit in anywhere except for with each other, which was like the, the calling card to be a member. Yeah, we all had like similar like, upbringings. Upbringings. Catholic dysfunction. Everybody in the band, interestingly, not everybody. Not, everybody's not everybody. Catholic, yeah. Not everybody, but the majority of the people in the band over the years have been Catholic or Jewish. A few sprinkled wasps. The sprinkling of wasps. <laughs> but the wasps tend to not be able to make it for something like I can't fuck with you guys anymore. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's interesting to think about, but it's true. I yeah. I feel like uh that's the one true calling card of this band is a certain level of uh, you know, subtle to extreme childhood trauma. Yeah. PTSD, uh, from upbringing stuff. I don't know, everybody has been to the ringer, I think. And the people that haven't been to the ringer who try to fuck around with us will be like, I can't. I can't participate in this and we're like it's cool. obviously you can't you know I mean it's just it seems yeah. just, we don't talk about this type of stuff I mean it's coming up now but yeah we talk about amongst ourselves we can you know? yeah yeah but I mean yeah, it's but... just we don't have to though I and mean, we all yeah. understand it it goes unsaid it's tacit yeah um, but it's yeah that's the truth and uh, you yeah. know we've all uh, and, you know we had, there's also a, 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 like a party animal vibe in there too that that not everybody can roll with. Yeah. To make some people uncomfortable. I mean, it's toned down a lot now as we're approaching the end of our lives. We, <laughs> uh, we made some people uncomfortable, but we uh, we always felt, you know, the, 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 whoever was attracted, whoever participated in this for an extended period of time, we all shared something uh, beyond the music, a lifestyle thing. But I think it was all, yeah, a lot of everybody that really could, could hang was, was people who couldn't fit in and other... Uh, walks of creative and life you know and, and creative endeavors that were just yeah. fit you know? people who didn't want to fit in people know? who didn't want yeah, to fit didn't stay out of their interests here's taylor richardson discussing the interplay between mental health and what happens when the band is playing music i think all of us like i mean i i have to say one of the biggest like i i guess one of the things that we have in common the most with all of us is like a crippling level of anxiety 
I, and, and, and I mean that, and, and it's not like saying like, I think it's that we find ways to, to, to try to get through it. And I think music is one way. And I think like, you know, I think we're all intelligent enough to, to understand how fucked everything is like within the system of, you know, like living in a capitalistic society and like, you know, just the way things are going like politically and just how nothing really is changing. And like, you know, I mean, it's dismal, but that's something that you, I, I would obsess over and would let way, way on me. But I think that like, honestly, like making music that is, is, you know, personal to us is a way to kind of transcend that dismay of just, you know, how everything seems to be going wrong constantly, no matter what you do. And like even physical discomfort, I mean, we all have our own issues and, and, and it feels like when we come together and we make music, we kind of just let those things go. I mean, I feel like it's our way of communicating with each other. Yeah. The making music. I mean, cause you know, we've all, like, I mean, I've been in this band for 17 years, and there's been periods where we've all gone through fucking massive breakups. We've all gone through, you know, deaths in the family. You know, we've all gone through these these horrible things. But, you know, that was the one thing where, you know, it's great to, like, talk to somebody over the phone, and you can communicate so much. But I, I just, I know some of the worst times of my life, like, I've come in this basement and, like, literally just played and like that was the only kind of like therapy I could really you know get something out of because it, it was really like a testament to like oh there is some sort of meaning to life it's it's meaningful like and I know it's meaningful to all of us mm-hmm. so but yes I think we all like are like have something wrong with us in one way or the other <laughs> to be honest with you I mean so yeah. Phil Franklin took a higher angle view, noting the universal quality of these mental health struggles and the band's impulse to meet it with music. I mean, everybody, I would think, feels weird about being human and being alive on planet Earth. It's just weird, the whole idea. And, you know, when you look at the, the... the length of existence and human beings, it's just a small little you know, time that we've actually been around. And then to break it down, you know, making music in the sort of way that we make music, it's, you know, it's just crazy. But over and over again, the main thing I heard was that the band existed in a way that made it okay to be who they were, difficulties and all. Here's Michael Kay. This is not the best head to be alone in. Um, I'm sure most people's aren't. But, uh, uh, mine does some weird tricks. Um, from where I come from, why I feel that way is feeling like I'm not really a musician. Well, I deeply come from that way of feeling super probably like, alienated and like agoraphobic and shit. I think there's something that like ton of social anxiety. So, but while I'm in Sunburn looking for a community. I'm also in an environment that's completely like adversarial to my nature and my, so I've been, and then like I'm allowed to be that way and be a shitty musician <laughs> or something. Like, I, I, I don't know what I contributed. Those guys will know better. Like what I actually did because I don't, I don't know. Uh, I guess I added something to the mix. <laughs> I feel like I can hear all of Michael's anxiety and self-consciousness take hold at the end of that clip. And it just illustrates everything that I feel like we're hearing. Now, let's close this segment with an interesting moment from a conversation with John Maloney and Rob Thomas. We've heard about the Harney family a couple times during this podcast. It seems like this family provided a model for a more positive way to exist in the world. And some people did come from very good family backgrounds, like, you know, the Harneys are still like the tightest family I know, oh, yeah. the model family. Yeah, but they were just very, uh, art, you know, positive. Yeah. yeah. And, and inspirational in a way that yeah. we all need, and we, you know, we all see eye to eye on a lot of things, but yeah. we all needed that help. Their, their parents, did, like, to me, their parents were just like, 
a refuge from where you know where I was coming from. Right. I can go just go over there and hang around. Yeah, yeah. and they they like, they they knew where, where I was coming from. You know? Sure. And they knew yeah. they they knew I was on from the other side of the tracks. But just come over and hang out. Mm-hmm. Christmas Eve's over there. We'd always go. You know. Yeah, very merry. <laughs> yeah, very 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 uh, loving family. Yeah. And you know, it's, we all had good families to, to oh, some, yeah, some yeah, degree. Yeah. You know, there's, no, always, there's always some positivity, but you know, the negative yeah. negative yeah. stuff like you take it with you for a long time in, in yeah. life, and uh, sometimes there's no escape from it, but. I find now that I don't feel like I have this burning desire to like run from uh, the past anymore. You know what I mean? I, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think anyone anyone feels like that anymore. go everybody in this band has moderate to severe trauma and to me this aspect of our story is the most amazing because here's this group of guys who found each other through weird art and formed a community not to commiserate or gripe or blame but to pull together and be creative despite it all and in that process it's possible they stumbled on like some naturally occurring like group therapy technique or dbt process i don't know yeah, yeah, and so that, you know, when I look through their stuff on Bandcamp a lot, there is, you know, within the tags kind of towards the bottom of the page, one that I see a lot is like group therapy, yeah. Uh, yeah. which I kind of always assumed was a bit jokey and maybe it is, but it seems like it mostly is not. I, uh, yeah. How did you talk about that with the band? Yeah, it's really interesting. Some of them are kind of nonchalant about this stuff, but I was able to really dig in about this with a couple of them what else do we need to cover for this last segment yeah i think just like really understanding like what the again like emotional impact of this of being in this band has meant to the people who've participated in it uh, yeah i just like would love to hear more about that okay awesome can totally do that all right get us started, here's John Maloney. This is how he described one of the underlying impulses of what Sunburn was all about. What uh, we all got each other and we got what we were all about, which was just about like, we're just doing this because we have to. We don't, we're not doing this for any, any other reason. And, and we're doing it and we love the, the camaraderie of, um, of just hanging out with the other musicians and just chilling out. Sometimes it's more about hanging out and you happen to play music. Yeah. Instead of like playing music and then having to hang out. You know, there's a lot of hanging out. Doing this just because we have to. I asked Taylor Richardson if he could describe what this hanging out might look like these days, specifically in terms of the supportive or therapeutic nature of the band. You know, because when there's a group of us all, like, you know, each of us know each other to different degrees, you know, so we show up. And if you have a, you know, you're having a heavy day or something, you're not going to just like, just want to hang out and talk about it or whatever. So like sometimes like John, John is like an amazing cook. So sometimes he'll cook dinner for us and we'll all sit around. We'll talk shit about music. We'll like, you know, but it's always a positive thing. We're not like sitting and talking about our problems. But I know you can tell like some of us. You know, between six guys that are going to show up in a basement every day, like two times a week, one of them is going to have like a heavy heart about something. So, you know, I think it's like it's a way for us to come together and not we're not trying to like I know those dudes are there for me whenever I need them. But it's not a way it's not a situation for us to come and just like like burden each other with problems. It's kind of like a celebratory thing. Because a lot of, you know, like we have jobs, like they, like some people have kids, like we have all these other things going on and it's like, a, it's, it's great to get together. And when we do make music, it's like ecstatic. 
And so I do think it is like a, a, a therapeutic experience because there's stuff we've made in this basement that we could never do in a studio. I mean, it's just, I think it's just the vibe of like, there's no pretense, there's no expectations, you know, like we'll, we'll just be together and we'll just do what we do. And sometimes it just reaches this level that I could never even imagine. I mean, it's really cool. So, and, and those, that's not something you could recreate in a show. It's like, you know, I hate to use the word bonding, but it's just like an experience where, you know, I, I feel like we all get each other to a certain extent. Like we all just like love music and, and it is therapeutic and it is a way for us to, you know, divorce ourselves from whatever reality we have to go back to. And, you know, it's just we have this these two hours or three hours or whatever to, to do something that is like really special to us. And, and honestly, some of it's like better, like the best stuff I've, I've, I've heard and maybe no one is ever going to fucking hear it. And that doesn't matter. It's just a way to, to make something with like people you deeply respect and care about. I mean, I think like I respect and look up to everybody in the band. I mean, some of the best musicians I've ever seen in my life. I heard the term family in many of my conversations. Here's Chris Corsano, Conrad Capistran, and John Maloney talking about the range of messy family dynamics often at play in Sunburn. Uh, yeah, it's like a bunch of people. So it would be uh, it'd be naive to think there wouldn't be rifts or, you know, that like people in the band have known each other since they were kids. So yeah, stuff goes down and then kind of, but sort of like family, you come back in the fold or whatever. And it was a big enough thing to hold itself somewhat together uh, over the years without having to retain the same exact shape. You know, John will say to me, he said it to me, I don't know how many times, he said, you're always in the band. Once you're in the band, you're always in the band. And he, you know, he'll say like, you were there at the beginning. So that means a lot to him, you know. Yeah, I'll go to bat for any one of these. There's, no, there's, there's no, nothing anyone can really do wrong in, in this crew. Yeah. Um, there's no way out. You know, we, you know, and, and there's a couple, a couple of beefs still going on with some ex-members, and it just sucks for all of us. Cause it's like, we you know, like, how old are we now? Like, does this, is it, like, all that, all that dude needs to do is show up. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just like, just get over it and show up, man. That's all. This is what it's all about. It's not about holding a fucking grudge. You know how much energy that takes yeah. to stay pissed off at somebody for, oh, yeah. for years. Years and years. Yeah. Yeah. That's like that's burning an unhealthy candle, and it's like it's it's not gonna go anywhere. It's only gonna it's not gonna light. This is like life. You get one chance at it. It's like that's the thing. John really sees it. It's like sunburn is like a family. It really is. We care about each other in a certain way. It's not a business agreement, you know. It's like it is like a family. I mean, John. John supports me so much. Like he's done so much for me. You know, we've all done things for each other. That's the way John thinks, you know. He's really loyal. He's a really loyal person. Can't underestimate that, you know. Like I said, most of the time I've spent with the band, I've had a recorder running. So to really drive home what I heard as the really thoughtfulness and care at work in this band, I'm going to share a little sneak peek behind the curtain. Here's a moment where John Maloney and I were just chatting and he was saying to me how happy he was that I was recording stories from all of these guys. I, I, I was just really, you know, I'm really happy that you talked to everyone you talked to at, in, in, in the depth that you talked to them with, like, you know, just knowing you sat down here with Taylor for 90 minutes, it's like, that really makes me happy because yeah. I know... I know that's that's gonna. I know that's gonna make him super happy. He's gonna. Yeah. It's gonna energize him. He needs it. You know, like he's from the same kind of dysfunction that I'm from. Yeah. And yeah. yeah it's yeah. really you know we're, we're in the same boat. Yeah. And we're going through it together. You know, we're just trying to trying to get get on get to the other side together and yeah. trying to help each other out. And same with Shannon and like Conrad. I'm glad you got to talk to Conrad. He's never been he's never been asked a question about sunburn. <laughs> Here's Shannon Ketch. You might recall he joined Sunburn much later in the band's existence. So he spent many years interacting with them from the outside. And he had this really interesting insight into another way this familial loyalty sometimes played out. 
when I'd see John, I'd be like, oh man, that guy's like, I, I, I was like a little bit afraid of him because I couldn't really, because he wasn't like a, someone that for, at least for me that he would come up to and connect with. And I knew other people there. So I was sort of like, uh, I don't know this, you know, and Rob, I kind of knew him through other friends, but they, they, they kind of held up a guard and I would guess because, you know, at the time that they were doing something that was, uh, it needed protected, that's a probably, in retrospect, I see that. Allison asked about the emotional impact of being in this band. To close out this segment, I'll share a moment with John Maloney. On the last night of my trip to Northampton, John and I sat down in his basement and we talked for a couple of hours. There was this one point where he shared some about his individual journey, and for me, it was this really distinct moment like part of it was just because like almost everything he said were things I could have said about myself but it was also really amazing to hear someone else talk about this stuff and how they were able to make that journey and get to that place so anyway here we go and uh, I probably had some I had things I needed to sort out because I can see a pattern of a certain amount of time and then something, then a break, then some kind of like break or like every 10 years, like uh, I was running from, from my childhood basically. Like yeah. I was just, I couldn't, I don't think I could, I could, couldn't process yeah. damage, yeah. couldn't process grief, couldn't process abuse and, and how, and I couldn't process the, you know, trying to unlearn all this stuff that I've been taught is like, and yeah. I've had some very good mentors and people, you know, I've had some very good people helping me out with this, with the, with, with things. Cause they, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I have a, I can see through it all. Some, some, most of the time I can see that this is not my fault. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this, yeah. and there's something there's like an, there's a different path through this. Yeah. I can kind of I can always see kind of, I can I've been pretty intuitive about the big picture in a way. Yeah. So yeah, I just in this yeah, since I met Sarah things have been very very mellow. Yeah. And uh yeah, you know, now I'm 50. Yeah. yeah. And I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I'm retired from being a psycho. That's that's for sure. So there's a lot. There's a lot of like really intimate details. I think that's part of what's what drove me at the front end of this. Of like, I really want to do a good job with this story. Yeah. Because they're sharing a lot of like important stuff yeah but it, it's important about for them but i feel like it's also important for people to be able to hear because there's an i think a model of how to be in the world mm -hmm. that these guys kind of present of like you know they found a group of people that they made a family together they are created together they don't sit around and complain and point out all the terrible things that happen i'm like i had to pull some of that out of them sometimes mm -hmm. um like not it's not that they don't want to talk about it it's just like that's not what we're here for. We're right. here to, to play. Yeah. All right. So we've talked about this music as group therapy. We've talked about it as something that is freestyle. We've talked about what it is and what it isn't. But I'd really like to dig more into about like what is actually happening yeah. when Sunburn, Hand of the Man is in motion because yeah. it's... Yeah, they're not playing stuff that they've like composed ahead of time. Right, like right, they're yeah. flying by the seat of their pants, uh, yeah, and I think yeah. that that is like impossible for some people to really even like conceive of. Um, so I'd love to yeah. like get into their heads a little bit more about what Im creative process it, is. Yeah, <laughs> and impossible for me to kind of comprehend too. But I think that's a great place for us to go mm -hmm. in the next episode. Okay, and I think that's getting us close to the end of this like big story. Okay. It's just like understanding what in the world it is that they're doing. Okay. So, cool. All right. Okay.
You've been listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunbird Hand of the Man. If you check out the show notes, we've included a list of links to pictures and other things discussed in this episode. We also have a list of the songs used in the episode, with links so you can go hear them in their entirety. I'm Kelly Davis. I hosted and produced this episode. My special guest was Allison Hussey. Editorial support was provided by Chris Sims and Allison Hussey. Portions of this episode were recorded in the studios of WXDU in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more.